Lee, it should come as no surprise to regular listeners that you are not a fan of modern art. <laughs> I didn't know we would start there, but okay. In fact, I remember a live show we did where you basically went on a rant about modern art, and you, you said something like you wanted your pictures to just be drawings of like horses and tractors and stuff that you could recognize. Uh, okay, yes. I, 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 I wish I could give more context, but in the interest of this podcast, I will just submit to that characterization of my theory. Because it's 100% accurate. <laughs> so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to do a very brief defense of modern art. Okay. And I think it's going to help us lead into this episode. Because one of my favorite schools of art is something called Cubism. And of course, Cubism is a very famous form of modern art. People like Picasso, uh, Joseph Chopik. And it's sort of recognizable almost immediately because you'll have a picture of a face and it, it looks all messed up. You've got an eyeball pointing one direction and a nose pointing off the other direction. Maybe there's a couple noses. It looks weird. It looks fractured. But the philosophy behind Cubism was this idea of perspective. That whenever we look at anything, we think we see it for how it is, but what we're seeing is actually how it is from the perspective where we are. The idea of cubism was, could you draw a single painting that represented a bunch of different perspectives all at once, all at the same time? And of course, what you end up with is a bit of an unsettling mess. And one of the things I love about cubism is because it seems to me that there is a truth to that. There is a truth to the idea that ultimately things are a bit of a jumbled mess. I mean, when we talk about something like UFOs, I'm incapable now of understanding the UFO phenomenon from anything other than kind of a cubist perspective, where we have all of these different interpretations and they don't make sense and there's contradictions and there's lies on top of lies on top of lies. If I painted a picture of our experience with the UFO phenomenon, ultimately that would be a cubist picture. Would you hmm. agree? Yeah. I like this analogy. Now you're a fan of modern art. No, because the, the role of art is to create structure out of chaos. And so if you just give me more chaos, you know, if I have to look at a... How did this turn into a debate about he cubism? Wants, he wants horses and tractors. I like horses and tractors. The, the role of art is to hold a mirror up to our fractured world and provide a fractured reflection. Here's why we're talking about this. Because this is what history is like. I, I think this is probably your experience too, not just of the UFO phenomenon, but whenever we talk about any kind of historical conspiracy, don't you get this impression mm -hmm. that we end up with all these contradictions and sort of weird side stories yeah, and odd coincidences and dead ends? And it, it's not a nice tidy list of all of the things that happened. <laughs> no. Like history is ultimately a bunch of weird relationships and stuff, un unexpected consequences. And so that's why what we're doing today is I think we're going to be sort of applying cubism to a story that we've sort of told already before. This is only a test. This is only a test. This is only a test. Hello and welcome to The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today from across the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hello, Lee. Hello, Nathan. I'm going to kick back and relax, and you are going to tell me a very strange story. I am going to tell you a strange story. Something weird happens in the beginning of the 60s in California, which is a bunch of people 
get their hands on a new drug that was being used by the CIA, being used by various laboratories at universities, by military scientists in the 50s. And this has somehow escaped into the larger world, specifically in California. And it is available very selectively to very few people as a street drug, and it's LSD. Now, what happens is a couple of people take this, and a lot of people in our story today have a remarkable experience. And their experience is, oh my God, I have to make this available to everybody. Now, I'm going to start with a gang of thugs. It's headed by a guy named John Griggs. John Griggs is a tough guy. He's kind of short. He's kind of skinny. Um, he stutters a bit. And I guess he uses violence as a cover. And he's a real thug. Like, he likes to get into fights. He surrounds himself with a bunch of other kind of mean guys. Robert Ackerley, Tommy JC, and Fred Tunnel. And these are high school buddies, and they get up to no good. Eddie Padilla joins them a bit later. And I mean, that's uh, a great tough guy name. Yeah, right? Eddie Padilla. And he's fully a tough guy, right? And they do things like throw beer bottles at cop cars. You know, they throw, they, they deliberately get into fights with people. There's recorded accounts of like, and you know, this is the 50s, so the kind of corporal punishment and violence in schools is not unheard of. And I think it was Eddie Padilla, who gets slapped by his teacher, responds that to the teacher that he, he quote, slaps like a girl, gets slapped so hard he gets knocked off his chair, and then stands up and whacks the teacher in the face with a desk. We're not talking about pranks and letting off steam. We're talking about criminal acts of violence. I say if these kids want to go around beating up people and wrecking things to prove how tough they are, then it's time we prove to them just how tough we are. Mayor Honeywell, could we say something? I'm, I'm sorry. What's all I... this? Do you have some facts to give us that we don't already have? I don't know whether you'd call them facts or not, but... Well, everybody keeps talking about teenagers as if we were a bunch of freaks or something. We're just wasting time. We wasted too much time already. But yeah, I mean, these are, so these are the kind of guys who seem to like to fight for fun. They've got like cigarettes rolled up in their white t-shirt exactly. sleeves. They've got slick back hair. Exactly. I got pictures of this. This yep. is exactly who they are. I, I was thinking actually of Greece when, um, when I was thinking about, like, a movie reference for, for these folk. See, that I haven't seen. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, it's slick back hair and white t-shirts with cigarettes in, in the arm uh, folded up. Anyway, so these guys are tough guys. They're also interested in drugs. So, okay, they drink, but they're also interested in, in street drugs. They're into speed, and they smoke pot, you know, whatever. And this is their, this is their racket. They, they do a little bit of pot smuggling. So, for example, what they do, Robert Ackerley does this uh, a couple of times. Um, they're in California, so Mexico's not that far. And what they would do, among other things, is they'd drive down to Tijuana, which is like right on the border. They'd score some pot in Tijuana, wrap it up in a bag, drive to the Mexican side of a border and then throw the bag over the fence to America, where somebody on the American side would bury it for them. 
They get back in their car. They go through customs, right? And of course, they got nothing, so it's fine. And they come and they, you know, they dig up their bag of pot and sell it. And they make some good money doing this. And they get into dealing. And they become some of the biggest pot dealers in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area and, you know, places like that. Okay? And, and this is at a time in history where cannabis has got like a very bad reputation. Yeah. It hasn't entered into the pop culture. There's been a lot of films about the, the horrors and dangers of cannabis. Right. And those the, films sounded like this. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Exactly. And... Yeah, the hippie scene has not arrived yet. And then, you know, post-hippie scene where uh, pot's really actually just like the least offensive of all the drugs that you might be able to get your hands on. So this is still in that moment where it's very scary, where it's associated a lot with mental illness, with um, violent crime. It's funny, actually, some of the associations that you get in some of the earlier references are things that we no longer associate with pot. We don't think about potheads, you know, holding people up at gunpoint because they're stoned. Right. The, there, the, there was also a racist aspect to this yes, there cannabis was. terror, I think. Yeah, sure, because it was the drug of choice of Mexican migrant workers and racialized and ghettoized African-Americans. Yeah, jazz musicians were well-known for their jazz cigarettes. Right, exactly. So, yeah, I feel like part of the cannabis terror was actually just old-timey racism. Yeah. So now these guys turn into big pot dealers, and it's cute. They, they're, they're also, they all got these, like, cool nicknames as well. I was hoping um, that was true. They also, they form a, now this is interesting, I've heard it either as a motorcycle or as a car club. They were called the, the Street Sweepers, and it sounds more like a car club than a motorcycle club. Anyway, they were a gang. <laughs> they were like either a car or motorcycle gang. The reason, it's not that I, I don't know. It's just that I've gotten different sources. Some people I'm have sure referred to I'm sure they probably did both. Maybe. Probably drove around in cars and on motorcycles. And on motorcycles. They were referred to as like a stick em up group. You know, like that's what their thing. They, 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 they did like small time hustles. They got into fights. Uh, they ran drugs across the border. They made a bunch of cash and they spent it on getting high themselves. And we pick up this story again in like, uh, I think it's 61, 62. So this is all happening between the late 50s and the early 60s. And uh, John Griggs has, and, and some of his buddies have now gotten a heroin habit uh, or addiction. Actually, it's not a habit. It's an addiction. Yeah. So things have turned sour. Like, uh, it's no longer, if it was ever fun, it's no longer these, you know, a fun time for young guys who are at the edge of the law. This has gotten kind of sad and nasty, and he's in a flop house shooting heroin and, you know, running some drugs on the side to maintain his habit. I mean, not to sound like a propaganda, anti-drug propaganda film, but I, I feel like heroin is not the kind of chemical that you can introduce to your life and then have it make your life better. You know, it, it does have the potential to really screw things up mm -hmm. for people. And it didn't seem to be doing any favors for John Griggs and some of his buddies. But word is, there's this new drug in town. And uh, they want to they get their hands on it. So they heard that a uh, movie producer had a ton of this stuff. 
this liquid LSD. Apparently, he kept it in a jar on top of his fridge. So what they do is they get ski masks, balaclavas, they get in the car, they drive up to this guy's place. He's having a party. They bust down the door at gunpoint and uh, tell him to hand over the acid. Um, street name for LSD. All our listeners know that. But they tell him to hand over the acid. And uh, of course, the movie producer does. He's, he's just like, here, take it. And they go, they go home and they try it. And they have a conversion experience. John Griggs and his buddies who try this, they have a complete conversion experience. For, for John Griggs, he saw God. This was the pathway to seeing God. I read this, I'm like, okay, whatever. But then, you know what they do? They pack up the LSD, they drive back to the producer, they apologize, and give it back to him. Whoa. Yeah. John Griggs and his buddies then also kick the heroin habit. Now, John Griggs is interested in making LSD as cheaply as possible available to as many people as possible. So he's basically had a religious conversion here. Yeah. And he wants to now be a, a kind of a missionary. Exactly. And spread the good news. Exactly. Exactly. And what follows the rest of the story is uh, how he proceeds to do that and in the process creates the largest smuggling operation that America had seen up to that point. Yeah. Yeah. And through an institution called the Brotherhood, Brotherhood of, of Eternal, Eternal Love. That's the most 1960s thing I've ever heard. Right? But what's even amazing, though, even more amazing for me, is that they didn't start out as hippies, right? They start out as these hardcore Tough thugs, guy greasers. Exactly. Who take acid and everything changes for them. And that is exactly it. John Griggs now becomes the leader of an organization that later Timothy Leary suggests should be incorporated into a church. And so they incorporate later, and I think it's 1965, they incorporate as the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, colloquially referred to simply as the Brotherhood. Now, briefly, the Brotherhood contains a lot of people who are more or less central. And it's, it's actually hard to get a good read on this, not only because they were a criminal organization, but as they're reputation and fame took off, a lot of people started to associate themselves with it that weren't actually part of the Brotherhood. But, you know, if you were selling hash or acid in California and you said this stuff was coming from the Brotherhood, it was, you know, considered way better. And so there was a lot of, you know, people who kind of latched on or used it for marketing purposes. Like Al-Qaeda. <laughs> okay. In a very different way. But yeah, similar. okay. Um, so here are some people, I'll just briefly run through the names, and then from here on in, we'll just call them the Brotherhood. John Griggs is the leader, his buddy Travis Ashbrook, Eddie Padilla, Robert Ackerley, Tommy, the brothers Tommy, JC, and Fred Tunnel, Dave Hall, Glenn Lind, uh, Rick Bevin, he'll come up later, Danny Castera, Chuck Mundell, uh, Russell Harrington, Robert Fat Bobby Andrist, uh, and Robert Stubby Tierney. So here we get some of the cool yeah, nicknames. They are some of the players in the Brotherhood. But for the purposes of, of this, I'm just going to refer to them either John Grigg, as he put it, using a, um, a term from Timothy Leary, which the whole scene uses, uh, a bunch of players who I'm going to introduce later use this as well. They want to turn on the world. 
They want to turn it on to LSD. Because uh, Griggs honestly believes LSD will save the world. No, our friend Caleb once told me that like, the definition of madness is somebody who thinks they have an idea that will save the world. Oh, it's interesting. This is, this is something that he gets very nervous about. Anytime anybody comes out and it's like, this is the idea that will save the world, to become so fixated and like single-minded on this one thing that will save everything makes him extremely nervous. It also makes me extremely interested to hear how they're going to go about doing this. Yeah. Well, what's, what I find interesting in the story, though, is that this didn't just occur to John. John Griggs. It seems to have occurred to a lot of people who took LSD. I've never heard that reaction from any other drug. And Timothy Leary, who is going to be a a bit player in this story, I mean, that's basically his experience, too. He drops acid, and his colleague, who becomes Ram Dass, I forget his, his, his former name, they both drop acid, and they're like, you know what? This needs to be made available to a whole lot of people right away. A whole bunch of adults who can take it in a safe space, maybe with a guide, a trip guide or something, and it will make the world better. So this happened to Leary. And um, Tim Scully, who we're going to meet in a moment, when he drops acid, that's exactly his experience too. It's an interesting quirk to this drug or maybe this class of drugs where I don't think anybody who takes cocaine or smokes pot or has a cigarette or a cup of coffee thinks to themselves, you know what, we got to give this for free to as many people as possible because this will save the world. They, they might think to themselves, either I'm having a lot of fun or I'm having a terrible time or I can make money off of this. But nobody is like, this is going to save the world. But it happened to a lot of people who took acid in the 60s in America, who are like, you know what? This is going to save the world. There's a spiritual aspect to hallucinogens that we don't necessarily see in those other kinds of drugs. We don't necessarily see it in the depressants. We don't necessarily see it in the stimulants or in the opioids. Yeah. And the other thing that's quite interesting, and Nathan, you have a wonderful example of this, is that there seems to be, I don't know really... (sighs) how to put this, there seems to be an almost anti-authoritarian element to this. Now, you and I have seen, and I strongly encourage any listeners to Google this, you can find it on YouTube, LSD, British soldiers, 1960s. Google that, you'll go, you'll find, you'll go to a YouTube video. Um, Nathan, could you describe what happens to these soldiers? Okay, so just briefly, the context, of course, the American and other militaries are interested in this new psychoactive substance because, hey, maybe we can use it. Of course, this was some of the background to MKUltra. Maybe we can use this to create super soldiers or whatnot. Yeah. So, But what actually happens when you give soldiers acid? Well, this experiment took place. There was a group of British soldiers who were going to conduct an exercise. So this wasn't a, this wasn't like a, a live action. This was just, no, we're running a simulation. We're running an exercise. They were told to basically uh, assault a headquarters and, and take it over. But what they didn't know was that they were given water beforehand, which was dosed with LSD. And you can watch this video. It's quite remarkable because what you see is the soldiers have a hard time being soldiers. They start to sort of skip along happily instead of marching. 
They're uninterested in their weaponry. They're uninterested in their mission. They're uninterested in their orders. One soldier in particular abandons his orders because he sees a bird up on a tree and thinks, what I should really do is feed that bird. There's people (laughs) collapsing into laughter. And there is also people who are terrified and freaking out because this is something that I think we really hit on when we talked about MKUltra, but it's worth revisiting. If somebody doses you with a hallucinogen against your will or without you knowing, I can't imagine too many things that would be more frightening than that. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's a psychosis. Yeah, and you if you think if, you were going mad. If, if you have the knowledge that you've taken a substance, then you might be able to mitigate the fear by knowing that you just need to ride it out and it's going to be all right. But if you don't know that, and this is actually... On the whole, I thought I wanted to end this year and the Christmas season with a kind of a feel-good podcast, and I was hoping this would be it. But in as far as it's not, it's in this moment of uh, what is known in the scene as dosing, which is when you give people uh, a hallucinogenic, well, I guess any drug, but especially hallucinogenic without their knowledge and consent. That's not cool. And it can have terrible side effects and of course yeah in that video you do see one guy in an ambulance freaking out of course in we discovered this also with olsen uh who you know had a very bad one of the mk uh, one of the mk ultra doctors exactly who who we did a podcast on because he had a very mysterious death when he also then decided as a result of this that he no longer wanted to be part of any of it but he seemed to have a really bad reaction to it yeah, um, it's entirely possible. And there are very few things that are quite as frightening as somebody having a bad time on hallucinogens. Yeah. Now, but I wanted to focus more on just how ineffectual this is for soldiers, but also why you might think that this actually could have some kind of political impact. So the Brotherhood, when they get set up and get going, among other things, they send a whackload of LSD to soldiers in Vietnam in the hopes that they will then stop following orders. You know, so this is how they're actually trying to impact the world. There's like, here's a drug. The evidence, my experience suggests, you know, speaking from John Griggs's perspective and others, my experience suggests this is going to make you more compassionate and have more of a sense of oneness and less authoritarian and so if that is in fact the case, let's let's send it to the soldiers, among other groups, to really just affect the world from the bottom up. And, and there is some reason behind that idea. I mean, obviously the CIA had an interest in MKUltra as a weapon and as a truth serum and as, as mind control. But one of the reasons they abandoned it is because they found it did have this effect. It did have the effect of making people feel less patriotic, less nationalistic and feel more of a kinship with all of humanity. I mean, there was a sub-project of MKUltra, Sub-Project 58, yeah. which was an attempt to weaponize psilocybin, or magic mushrooms. Yeah. And the, How'd that go? The effect of that was the researchers who were testing it decided to quit the CIA because they thought, <laughs> why are we doing these terrible things? Why don't we go off and do better things? So I can kind of understand what they were getting at, but I think it would be wildly dangerous to, again provide hallucinogens to people in a situation like that, yeah. in, an, in an active warfare situation. Yeah. Well, um, there was actually within the scene a debate about... There, were, there was no debate that acid would, would change the world, would lead to a kind of consciousness raising. The question was, should it be bottom-up or top-down? 
should you dose the population and get them high and and just forcibly experiencing the oneness of everything and then through some kind of democratic shift this would affect the world or do you dose the leaders and and then they discover that everything is mumbo jumbo and that you know they're okay so it was actually a debate and there were different people on different sides of the scene griggs and his group of thugs are, are now fully converted they believe in the transcendent power of LSD. They talk about it as a spiritual communion. They start using it on a weekly basis. They uh, use it as a ritual drug. They'll go out into the desert and they start dropping acid. We're just going to pause here for a moment and go to a totally different set of people because uh, these two stories become intertwined, but you need this other group of people. You need a bunch of different perspectives. Ah, uh, yeah. Because you're being a cubist here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grumble, grumble. So there's really three sets of players. There's a brotherhood who I've just introduced. They're the chemists who I'm about to introduce. And then there are what I might call the connectors. They're a bunch of people who, uh, without whom none of this story would, would really have gotten off the ground, and they're the ones who connect the Brotherhood with the chemists. And these include uh, Ken Kesey, Timothy Leary, a guy named Bill Hitchcock, who I'll introduce you to in a second. And but these I'll, are all really big names in 1960s counterculture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's actually quite remarkable how interconnected this scene was. Everybody in the LSD scene was reading Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception, from whom the 1960s band The Doors took their name. Doors of Perception. Yeah. Aldous Huxley was friends with, or at least knew, Timothy Leary. And Ken Casey, I believe, had connections to MKUltra. Exactly. And also buddies with Timothy Leary, who uh, also was doing LSD experiments on his grad students, uh, which is why he lost his job, Leary did. And uh, Ken Kesey also runs, he's the head of the Merry Pranksters, who do the acid tests. These are parties where they introduce either knowingly or unknowingly, a group of people to LSD. So that's quite a crowd. That's quite a cast of characters that you've built now for the story. Yeah. So we, I want to just introduce you to the chemists. There's a guy named Tim Scully. And um, he tries uh, acid for the first time in 1965. And guess what? He thinks to himself... I could save the world with this. this. <laughs> not only I could save the world, it's actually not I can save the world... It's, this can save the world, uh, and I want to give it to everybody for free. So, just like John Griggs, uh, Tim Scully has basically the same experience a couple of years later. But he doesn't, uh, he's a chemist, he knows what he's doing, like he, he can do complex uh, organic chemistry and, and, you know, all this stuff that I try to learn about, but it's so far above my head, these kinds of reactions, that even on the third time of listening, I really don't understand how to create LSD. It's a very complicated process, though. It's really akin to uh, what you might see in Breaking Bad, uh, that, that TV series, is you need a laboratory, at least, and you need know-how, and then you need a lot of pretty inaccessible raw materials. You know, they're not just things that you can find in drugstores, grocery stores, Under whatever. Your sink. Exactly. And you need a lot of know-how. So, uh, Tim doses in 1965 decides that uh, this will change the world, that he needs to somehow figure out a way to make this as accessible to as many people as possible, but doesn't know actually how to do it 
and can't get his hands on the raw materials. So he spends like a year and a half in libraries, researching, thinking about it, but he can't get his hands on raw materials. His roommate goes to a party from Ken Kesey. And at that party, she meets a guy with the unbelievable name of, hold on, Augustus Osley Stanley III. That's a that's quite a handle. Yeah, Augustus Osley Stanley III, who is commonly referred to as, either simply as Osley, but Tim refers to him as Bear because that, that was his nickname or he started using this nickname at the time. Bear is producing acid. He knows how to he knows how to make LSD. And at this point, it, sh- it should be noted that at this point in the narrative, um, LSD is still legal. It's it has not been made a controlled substance. So he's making acid. Scully's roommate uh, at the party. She's like, you know, uh, my roommate's really interested. Would you mind? You know, whatever. Apparently, Bear Osley, whatever, uh, and Scully's roommate are kind of into each other. And so Osley comes by. Uh, Scully's place uh, a few days later uh, looking for Diane. That was that was the roommate's name. And they get to talking. And Osley's like, you know, this there's this kid's bright. Like maybe we can we can work with him. And Osley is uh, the sound engineer for the Grateful Dead. The, no, that, the, that checks out. The Grateful Dead had actually asked him, Phil Lesh had actually asked him to be their manager and Osley's like, no, I'm not interested. But I'll, I will be your sound engineer. Tim Scully, the guy, the, the chemist we started this part with, uh, was also into electronics, so they geek out on electronics for a bit. And Osley decides that um, he will let him work with him, touring with the Grateful Dead and working on, their, on the sound systems as a kind of a roadie uh, sound guy. And uh, what Tim later realizes is that actually this is a prolonged job interview. Basically, Osley is wondering, can I trust this guy to be my apprentice. Half a year of touring with the dead, Osley's like, okay, you can you can come into the lab with me. That is a long job interview. It is. But you know, if you're if you're running this kind of a scam, you probably really want to vet the people you're working with. So he becomes Bear's apprentice, Osley's apprentice. So Tim Scully becomes Osley's apprentice and learns the trick of the trade. But then in 1966, in the state of California, uh, LSD is turned into a controlled substance. And Osley becomes a lot less interested now in flirting with, you know, getting caught in the law and stuff like that. Because not only at this point is LSD a controlled substance, but isn't it considered like one of the most controlled substances? we're, We're getting there. And that has to do with the actions of the Brotherhood and people like these chemists who are giving this stuff essentially away for free. And it causes a moral panic within mainstream American society, which thinks that, you know, there's this rot in our midst and it's, it's, it's sac- you know, our youth are being sacrificed and people are being turned on to God knows what, communism or, or whatever. The age of bobby socks and ice cream sodas is gone. These people no longer feel constrained by the social rules of the past. They are better read and more concerned about all people and all cultures. An older generation could learn about fresh thinking from them. Their energy is boundless. They play hard, but they are also involved. 
Right. The last thing we need is people being open-minded. <laughs> um. The turned-on people who seem to set many of today's lifestyles are not the only ones smoking grass, popping bennies, shooting speed, or dropping acid. If they were, the problem would be somewhat less tragic. So, so Osley wants out. And Scully's like, look, I know enough. I'm gonna, I'm gonna run these. I want to run a lab now, but doesn't have enough cash to do it himself. No. So he hooks up with a guy named another chemist named Nicholas Sand. Nicholas Sand is willing to go in with Scully on it, and they're buddies. They're still buddies. Well, okay, Nicholas Sand died in 2017, but they're still buddies today. I mean, they didn't hang out for a long time, but there's no animosity between the two. They though did have some different philosophies. Uh, Nick Sand also believed that it would change the world, but he wanted to get paid for the for for you know for for bothering. Uh, Scully was like, no, you know, besides just covering the basic costs, I don't want to make money out of this. this I is want a spiritual this. quest. Exactly, this was going to make the world better. They team up, and they go to Denver, Colorado, because the laws are these are state laws that we're dealing with so it became a controlled substance in california it did not become lsd did not become a controlled substance in all of america at the same time so in denver you were still able to get some of the raw materials and it's really more about getting the raw materials because they didn't care that much about the legal status of the final product anyway they set up a lab in denver and they start cooking their acid there osley's coming by just to help him out a bit Nick Sand had been involved in drug pushing before and was using as his main conduit. He only ever liked to use one pusher at a time. And he was running his drugs through the Hells Angels, specifically a guy named Terrence the Tramp. That's a good nickname. Scully did not like the Hells Angels, did not like Terrence, and was basically said, look, if we're going to get into this together we got to distribute this through the brotherhood. Uh, That is the brotherhood of eternal love. So interesting now, you have these two criminal gangs, both involved in drug pushing, but one of them is violent and the other one is is doing it for these higher aims of consciousness raising. And Nick Sand is a mercenary, doesn't really care uh, who does the distributing. Uh, Scully, though, is of the opinion that this actually does matter. And and Osley, too, Scully talked about this. Osley had this belief that your intention in like producing the drug mattered. Like if you were doing it to make money, that would actually affect the experience of the end user. Now, I don't think Scully believes this, but this is kind of like <laughs> these are the people we're dealing with and their, their ideas about the world. That's the kind of idea that you might come up with if you've been using your own supply for a while. <laughs> so Scully and Sand, they start producing acid now the thing about lsd is that you produce a huge amount with very few inputs so with 15 grams of starting or finished material well starting material actually i think it's 3600 doses per gram and the minimum you could possibly produce is like 15 or 20 grams and they're producing pounds of lsd they do finally get busted. Actually, uh, they get busted more than once. They had produced, I, th- I think, something like 4 million uh, hits. That is a lot of acid. Uh, and these are strong. Now, their uh, goal 
was to produce three quarters of a billion hits of acid. Now, in any other scene, that might seem hyperbole. But when you're dealing with LSD, that's actually within the realm of possibility because you're dealing with such small quantities required to get somebody extremely high for like days on end. So right? this, this sounds like a plan to dose the world. Exactly. It, that is exactly the plan. That is exactly the plan. Now, okay, so we got the chemists and they're producing it. And, and what they are producing now is called Orange Sunshine. And it is legendary. This is legendary LSD. I mean, it comes up over and over again in pop culture references. So we got the Brotherhood and we've got uh, the chemists. And they're, now they've been connected through these intermediaries. I wanted to go back to the Brotherhood. The Brotherhood is, in the meantime, investing in a whole bunch of front organizations and scams, which, I, which it itself I find kind of funny. One of the things they do is they create what I think is the first of its kind, a hippie wellness center. It's called Mystical Arts World. And it is a shop that sells spiritual books. Candles. Yes, candles, incense, meditation carpets, uh, books on yoga, uh, tarot cards, crystal balls, mandalas. They have a quote-unquote secret meditation room in the back. They have a, a juice bar. I mean, this is like 1965. Like, this stuff seemed hip like 15, 20 years ago, and that was already 50, 60 years after the first one of its kind opened up. Okay, so they are running this shop called Mystical Arts World, and they're in this uh, community in California where everybody's getting high and the cops are starting to show up more and more. So Griggs and his gang move out into more into the desert and they found what they call the, the church where um, they start, you know, dosing acid, pretty frequently and bringing other people up there, including Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary goes up there and loves it. And him and John uh, Griggs are two peas in a pod. Uh, they're quite different, but Griggs has been described by a lot of people who knew him as this very charismatic organizer. You know, people were drawn to him and he really came across as this spiritual being. And he, Griggs that is, was really impressed with, you know, being a bit of a thug and a street kid, was was really impressed with the academic chops of Leary, who is this, you know, Harvard professor of psychology, very well connected, uh, you know, moves in a totally different social circle. So he looked up to Leary, but Leary also looks up to Griggs. So there's these, there are these two strong men who really admired each other. And Leary basically moves into the moves moves into this hippie commune in Modesca, in the desert, and they're all just you know tripping balls all day long. Uh, around this time, and this seems like a bit of a a tangent, but it's, it ends up being quite central to the story. Around this time, uh, I think it was Ashbrook or one of the one of the brothers gets their hands on some hash. Now we know that marijuana was known in the scene and they had been smuggling it and they'd been dealing it but hash was in 1967 in the united states a complete novelty it was something nobody knew about and they smoke this stuff and they love it they just love it and what they want to do 
is get their hands on more. Okay. So, you know, again, like they want to turn on the world to LSD. They want to affect this general consciousness raising, but they also really like getting high. And they have a sort of a drug taxonomy where there's certain okay drugs and others that are not okay. So marijuana, hash, LSD, uh, psilocybin, or on the good side, cocaine, heroin, etc., stuff like that, maybe not so good. Okay, they want to get their hands on more hash. One of the brothers, Dave Hall, he takes a, a surfboard, he hollers it out, and he puts it himself and the surfboard on a plane to Portugal. And then uh, from Portugal, he goes to New Delhi, scores himself a whole bunch of hash, stuffs it in a surfboard, and brings it back to California, and sells all that stuff like within an hour, and makes so much money. But this is the interesting thing again now about the Brotherhood. They don't keep the money. This all goes into funding Mystical Arts World and uh, eventually buying and selling LSD for under the price that they paid for it. The Brotherhood's idea is to flood the market with so much LSD that it becomes essentially worthless, like that it has no monetary value. So they are losing money. They're not dealing it to make money. They are losing money on it and need to develop, like need other sources of income. Yeah, they're, they're not dealers, they're converts. Yeah, and their other source of income becomes a smuggling operation. To smuggle, to a lesser extent, marijuana from um, Mexico, but to a larger extent, to smuggle hash from Afghanistan. So after the first initial success of one of the brothers bringing over a hollowed out surfboard full of hash, they clue into this as like, hey, this is a great idea. In order to make this story comprehensible, you need to know that it was easy to get a fake passport and get on a plane in the mid-1960s. Rick Bevan and Travis Ashbrook, they do the first serious run. Okay, so what they do is they sell a bunch of, you know, pot, whatever, uh, and take the money to England where they then buy themselves a Land Rover and a camper van. They take that, and their, their idea was to go to Kathmandu in Nepal and, and score a whole bunch of hash over there, okay? Now, on their way, they meet some hitchhikers in Bulgaria, and they start talking to uh, them, uh, their plan, and they were getting, like, tired. It was a big trip, and they were like, you know what, let's just go to Turkey, and we'll score the hash there, and, and that'll be fine and whatever. And these, these, these hitchhikers uh, that they met, European hitchhikers they met in Bulgaria, are like, no, 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 no. You, you don't want to go to Turkey. Certainly don't want to buy hash in Turkey. But you also don't want to go to Nepal. The place you want to go to is Afghanistan. So they get convinced. And they're like, okay. They drive almost all the way to Afghanistan with these hitchhikers. But that their, their, their hitchhiker buddies, they don't have enough money to, get, to pay whatever toll you need to get into Iran. So Travis and Rick, they give them some money so they can like take a bus home or whatever. And then they go the rest of the way. They get into Afghanistan. And, you know, these, they, they have no idea. I mean, these are just two like surfer dudes from California who have never been out of the country. And here they have just, you know, they're in Afghanistan. They have no connections to anybody. And so they don't know what to do. And they just like start walking around and, you know, kind of asking people. And eventually they meet some guy like kind of hears about what it is that they want. 
and he invites them over to smoke some hash and it's like the best thing they've ever smoked. It was Nazrullah Toki and Hayatullah Toki were the two brothers who become the major Afghan hash suppliers for the brotherhood. Now what they do, the Toki brothers, you know, they arrange a deal and something like it's very, very, very cheap for the Americans to, to buy this hash, like 25 bucks a pound, which is just a huge amount of, of the drug. And they get close to 100 pounds worth. Yeah? And they get, the Toki brothers get some local merchants to fill up uh, these beautiful antique Afghan instruments with the hash. And there's like concealed compartments and all this kind of stuff. And um, they ship it back. So just like at the beginning when they used to do the, the Mexican drug runs, they wouldn't cross the border with the stuff on them. So they send this stuff in a crate separately from, from themselves. And then they, uh, they get back to California. And a few days later, the crate arrives. Then the Brotherhood, uh, they bust up all these instruments, which are beautiful antiques. Oh, yeah, I don't like that. No. I thought they, they fell radically in my esteem. You know, these are just, they're just, they're still kind of thugs down underneath it all, you know, like they don't know. They got these beautiful antique instruments and they just beat them, like they just broke them to get the hash. Anyway, they sold the hash in no time, like within the day. And again, this is not money that went into their own pockets. This is money that goes to John Griggs, which then goes to funding Mystical Arts World. And they also had a plan of like, they were going to get an island in which they were going to create this utopian community of enlightened people through LSD. That never goes well. (laughs) Utopian communities, in my experience, (laughs) those never, ever go well. Well, interestingly, they actually, weirdly, they actually almost managed it. It seemed like a really sweet, situation this skipping ahead a bit but the brotherhood does spend a year in 1970 in hawaii just hanging out surfing smoking pot all day long and it sounds really beautiful so this becomes the template now they they run this scam over and over and over again it was it became known as the hippie caravan and there were times when there were Brotherhood members that other Brotherhood members didn't know were in Afghanistan. They like meet up there by accident on the street. They would talk about walking through the bazaars. And of course, they didn't speak Pashtun or whatever other local languages. Dari. Uh, well, well done. And Farsi. And, you know, okay. Uh, they didn't speak any of uh, the local languages. But, you know, they would get snippets of hash or California or, you know, this kind of stuff. This becomes the largest uh, drug smuggling operation to that time in the United States. The Brotherhood is responsible for doing this. And they're doing it in order to like, change the world for the better. They themselves, by and large, although there are internal tensions, uh, by and large, they themselves are not getting rich out of it. They're having a great time. They're getting high. But they are not becoming rich. The Brotherhood becomes rich. Tim Scully doesn't become rich. Nick Sand doesn't become rich. Those are the chemists, just to remind you. And most of the Brotherhood doesn't become rich. But they are running hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, of drugs. You know, it's just unbelievable. That's wild. So, that's the basic structure of this conspiracy. It's a criminal conspiracy meant to make the world a better place 
by giving people a drug that these people believe, by making a drug accessible to as many people as possible, that these people believed would make the world a calmer, gentler, and nicer place. Did they succeed? Did the world become a calmer, gentler, and nicer place? So interesting, this was one of Tim Scully's realizations along the way, was that, no, actually, this is not working. And to quote him, he says, you know, you give an asshole LSD, they often are still an asshole. So there was this really terrible moment at the, was it the Ultramar concert? Altamont. Altamont, thank you. It's this big concert. Uh, Trying to the, capitalize on the success <clears throat> of Woodstock. Right, uh, where the Rolling Stones are going to give a free concert. And stupidly, the Hells Angels are brought in to act as security. I've heard various versions of this story, but in the one of my sources for this podcast is a book by Nicholas Shu called Orange Sunshine. And in Orange Sunshine, apparently they talk about, in the book that is, the Brotherhood talks about how they tried, they dosed the Hells Angels with a huge amount of LSD. So they put a bunch of LSD in a, a wine bottle and they tried to hand it to them, but they got punched in the face instead and they just uh, just took it. And then there was a guy, his name is uh, was Meredith Hunter, who was there at the concert. And again, I've heard various versions of the story, none of which uh, justify what happened to him. He walks towards, comes towards, rushes even. These are the various versions of the story. Rushes the stage, maybe. And the Hells Angels beat him to death. Yeah. And he dies. You know, they were apparently completely stoned on acid. Like, they were out of their minds on acid. But it did not make them nice. No. And when you watch footage of that concert, there's a couple things that come across. One is that there is this weird feeling of menace in the air it's even visible in the videos apparently from the people who were there it was so palpable i mean the grateful dead were supposed to play at that show they landed they checked out the scene and then they took off again they yeah. said, we're not playing this show there's something wrong with this show yeah that altamont show is often held up as sort of the moment where all of the 60s optimism the altamont disaster where that that kid was beaten to death and of course the charles manson murders are held up as sort of the moments where the 1960s idealism came to a crashing halt on the rocks of reality. That's right. And what Tim Scully, the chemist, and a bunch of the Brotherhood notices, and a lot of people noticed, is that uh, the epicenter, of course, of the hippie scene with this inter was this intersection of uh, Hate and Ashbury Street, called the Hate or the Hate Ashbury. It had been the place... 66, 67, where the hippies were flocking. It was free love. And, and this is where the Brotherhood... So again, just to get back to what they were doing, they would like walk up and down the streets with a big basket full of LSD and they would just like offer it to people. This was like this kind of happy, optimistic period. But then 67, 68, certainly by 69, the scene had changed quite a bit and people who went down to Haight-Ashbury noticed that it was no longer fun. It didn't look like free love. It looked like a lot of lost homeless kids. A lot of hard drugs had entered the scene. Instead of, you know, pot smoking and free love, it was like heroin and fights and, and assault. assault and rape and homelessness. And, and so it had turned nasty. It had turned sour. And Nick Sand drops out. 
he's like, you know what? Forget it. But this is this is not working. I mean, he, he he had brushes with the law as well. And simultaneous to this, John Griggs is uh, still experimenting, still screwing around. Gets his hands on synthetic psilocybin. Takes a huge quantity and to turn a long story short, ODs and dies in August of 1969. The Brotherhood was John Griggs. Once John Griggs dies, the Brotherhood is now kind of just a loose assemblage of slightly more or less idealistic drug pushers. The ones that don't get arrested immediately move out to Hawaii. There create one of the legendary marijuana strains uh, Maui Wowie with uh, by mixing I think it was some seeds from their Mexican trips with either indigenous Hawaiian strains or with Afghan strains but they eventually are most of them are arrested in turn Tim Scully is arrested they find they get him and Nick Sand through tax fraud uh, just like Al Capone Nick Sand, he's a, he's a troublemaker. And he starts smuggling, get, having drugs smuggled, specifically LSD, into the prison. And then starts running sessions, as he calls it, for prisoners, getting them high. And then eventually gets the whole prison high by dosing the food. Man, that guy was a true believer. <laughs> but uh, Tim Scully is, you know, a very studious... And it's trying to find a, a loophole to have their case reviewed. I can't fully understand the legalese of it, but they eventually find it and their bail is reduced. They're let out on bail and Nick Sand escapes and comes to, of all places, Canada, where he establishes another LSD lab in British Columbia secretly and continues to manufacture LSD up until his second arrest in 1996. So those friends of ours who had the LSD experiences in the 90s, I'm kind of wondering if they themselves did not get their hands on some Nixand LSD. Wow. But... There's, there's one more moment to all of this. This is going to put a hat on the whole story. Exactly. Among many of the other people who got busted was Timothy Leary, our, you know, psychedelic uh, guru, guru, yeah. you know, um, spiritual evangelizer, he, all of he's that. He's the face of hallucinogens in the 1960s. Th- that's right. I mean, he is in that uh, Give Peace a Chance video with John Lennon. You see, he is all over the place. Like, at all the major happenings... In the 60s, Timothy Leary is somewhere in the background. I mean, he is the tune-in, turn-on, drop-out guy. That's right. And the, all those guys who are using that phrase, turn-on, that's Timothy Leary's phrase mm-hmm. as well. Timothy Leary is arrested on September 12, 1970. And he escapes from his holding cell. Okay? He escapes from his holding cell, runs down the street to a car where members of the Weather Underground are waiting for him. Okay, He gets in the car, and the Weather Underground drive him to Canada, set him up with a phony passport, and then get him out to Europe. From Europe, he takes a plane. Now, he's in disguise, okay? Like, he's shaved his head. He's got big horn-rimmed glasses. He looks like a fuddy-duddy professor. Nobody's getting in his way. And um, again, you know, phony papers are easier to get at this point. And uh, from Europe, 
they get him into Algeria, where he hangs out with the Black Panthers. The whole thing is funded by the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Huh. What are your takeaways, Nathan? Um, that history is a big, complicated mess. Oh, oh Cubist painting, is it? Yeah, yes. okay. <laughs> that if we ever try to look at something like a decade from one perspective, we're not going to be able to see it. And so I think this has been a good exercise in a Cubist perspective examination of history. And again, I think has established once and for all why modern art is great. Damn it. <laughs>